Hello, and welcome to the Business of Information Security podcast with me, Gareth Becker. In this podcast, we chat to senior cybersecurity executives from a range of industries about their passions, experiences, and challenges. Without further ado, let's go ahead and dive straight into today's episode. Welcome to the Business of InfoSec podcast. Today, I'm joined by Lester Godsey, who is the Chief Information Security Officer for Maricopa County in Arizona, USA. Lester became CISO for Maricopa County in November of 2019. But prior to that, he was the Chief Information Security Officer for the city of Mesa, Arizona, where he worked in various roles since 2010. Maricopa County itself contains several large cities, including Phoenix and Mesa, and is the fourth largest and the fastest growing county in the United States. And as politics nerds, such as myself, may know, became a hotspot for attention in the 2020 presidential election. So welcome to the podcast today, Lester. I'm really happy to have you here. Thanks to be, uh, thanks for having me here, Gareth. Oh, it's a great pleasure. And um, I thought perhaps we could kick off uh, by you telling us a little about yourself and how you got into the field of cybersecurity. Yeah, so like so many other people that I've met in the cybersecurity field, it wasn't a straight line, uh, more circuitous uh, to say the least. So um, I've been in... uh, I've been in IT overall for 25 years and all either public sector or higher education, but my undergrad actually is in music. So um, my aspiration at one point in life was to become a high school band teacher. And so it wasn't until my fourth year of college, I started doing my student teaching observation and realized um, I wasn't overly fond of kids. (laughs) So uh, I had to do a quick uh, course correction uh, tried computer science for a semester, failed all my classes, true story. Uh, so then I did my general BA music. So six and a half years of college later, I had a BA in music. And the only thing I was uh, able to do with that is the one thing I didn't want to do. And so then uh, I went and uh, to my master's in technology, where the second time around, I was a lot more successful. And so really, um, that's kind of how I just got into IT in general. And so like a lot of other cybersecurity professionals, I kind of came up the IT ranks, started off in the help desk, and then kind of transitioned to desktop support, and then system administration, uh, web application development, et cetera, et cetera. If I had to categorize my uh, career and background, uh, I was a jack of all trades. I I tended to work for smaller organizations, so I had to wear multiple hats. And in hindsight, now being in the role I am, Uh, security is one of those areas where you really benefit from having a wide background because the way I like to say it is security touches all seven layers of the OSI network model, as well as layer eight for those of you who get that uh, reference. So that's kind of a, maybe a little bit more involved uh, description of how I got into cybersecurity. So I think that's fascinating. And you're right. I mean, talking to, you know, the executives uh, who I speak to, it really is fascinating how, you know, people take different paths into the profession. And, um, and also, to refer back to what you're saying is, uh, my wife and I are actually both uh, former teachers. And uh, I think it was a very good discovery that you made (laughs) earlier on. And I'm glad that you acted on it at that time, because you definitely don't want to 
uh, slog it out for 20 years and then, <laughs> and then realize yeah, that. There is that. So, and for your listeners, uh, just a heads up, uh, not to worry, I do not have children. So, <laughs> sounds like a sensible decision. So, um, now, a, a big part of what we're going to talk about today is your work during the, well, during the 2020 election, but as well, uh, elections more generally, looking at future elections and so forth. But, you know, you're the Chief Information Security Officer for Maricopa County. There's lots involved with that. I wanted to ask you how you would describe your main responsibilities and your main focus uh, in that role. Yeah, so again, as you stated in the, the intro, by population, Maricopa County is the fourth largest county in the United States. And so we have uh, around 4.5 million residents within the county. We're the fastest growing county by population as well. Um, as such, you can imagine the size of the organization is very large and it's also very uh, complex. And so from an IT perspective, we have a decentralized approach to IT services throughout the county. So there's a total of 56 different departments within Maricopa County. The vast majority of them do receive their primary IT support and by extension, their security support through the Office of Enterprise Technology, which I belong to. And so that's that's more or less the, the main or primary IT organization within Maricopa County, but it's not the only one. And so we have a number of departments that have their own IT organizations of varying sizes, maturity, and uh, scope, if you will. And so a lot of those tend to be centered around uh, the elected departments. So we delineate between uh, people who are heading up departments that are elected into that role versus who are appointed. And so the majority of the quote unquote appointed departments receive their support from OET, although there are exceptions to that. And then departments such as the, uh, um, such as the recorder who's responsible for running elections in Maricopa County, they have their own department. That's an elected position. Uh, there's a small IT organization there. They do have a information security officer in that role as well. And so my role as the enterprise uh, CISO for Maricopa County in large part is to build true enterprise governance from an information security perspective. And so one, one of the things that in the course of the two years that I've been in this role that I've been repeating and sharing with everybody in the county is you know, we might have logical and or political um, differences with regards to organizational structure, approach, service delivery, et cetera, et cetera. But that I guarantee that the bad guys at the end of the day don't care about that. And they're just looking for the weakest link in the fence. So from a governance perspective, probably my biggest role, in my opinion, from a, as being the CISO is to build that, that enterprise level of information security governance and to ensure there's no weak links in our chain link fence, regardless of where the departments within Maricopa County are getting their IT support. Yeah, I think that's, that's fascinating. And there's, there's so many things that I could go, go into and ask you about uh, in relation to that. Um, but I, I thought it would be interesting for this, uh, our first conversation on, on the podcast to talk a bit about uh, the topic of elections. And um, I know that you've spoken at a couple of uh, conferences uh, on, um, in relation to this topic. And so looking back at the 2020 election, um, what kind of cybersecurity incidents or factors did you track during that election? And 
how did they compare to your experiences of um, of previous elections? Yeah, so uh, just by way of uh, clarification there, Gareth, so to be to be perfectly clear, at least in Arizona, um, it's not this way throughout the country, it, depending on what part of the country you're in will determine at what what governmental level handles or uh, elections. So really, the 2020 election was my first hands on experience in managing elections, because in the city of Mesa, um, in the city of Mesa, they the city doesn't technically run its own elections. They may have polling sites located within the geographic boundaries, but they're not "quote unquote" uh, responsible for the election. So, my the 2020 election was my first hands-on foray. So that that was quite the experience. So I don't really have anything to compare it against. Um, but if I understand the spirit of your question, I will tell you that the 2020 election cycle, which consumed a majority of the actual 2020 calendar year was not like anything I had ever experienced in my 25 year professional career. And that's, that's no exaggeration. I think probably the closest thing uh, that I could compare it to was when I've actually been involved in a, uh, when our emergency operations centers have been uh, initiated in my previous jobs due to natural disaster. And I think that's a good, uh, I think that's a good comparison to be to be honest with you. Wow, yeah, that's a real baptism of fire uh, for sure. And um, and thanks for the clarification. I mean, it, it is fascinating how um, you know how the elections are run here in the United States uh, is different to you know yeah. in the UK. It's different in Europe. I'm sure it's different in every country that uh, conducts them, and, and they they are very local um, affairs. And so, but to, so to answer your original question, uh, I know I just wanted to give that clarification. Um, really, what did we see in 2020? Um, it pretty much was a smorgasbord of the kind of security events you might see uh, over an extended period of time. And so, what I mean by that is, and all this is public record, so I'm not saying anything that we haven't disclosed previously. So, for your listeners, just. I'm uh, very cognizant of that. And so we saw things ranging from uh, scan attempts like we normally do on a daily basis, but a, of an increased amount and uh, quantity, if you will, from uh, various different nations. We, we do, we're on the receiving end of some DDoS attacks. We, uh, we had an incident where we had individuals who uh, were trying to scrape data off of our public website um, during the actual on the actual election day for the presidential election, for example. Um, we had uh, we had reported uh, advanced persistent threat uh, actors attacking us, and so I, I was I was engaged with our federal partners, as you might expect, and. Uh, in between, uh, in between the presidential preferential and the uh, the primaries, we we actually got involved. We had received word from a fusion center on the east coast of the U.S. that had received notice that there was some unusual activity occurring on a very popular uh, government collaboration uh, hosted platform that we happen to use. And so we looked into it and then we worked with that vendor who's super responsive, although I won't, I won't name them. 
and our federal partners and come to find out that it appeared that they were the subject of a bot attack where they had like over 30,000 automated registrations on their platform. And um, our federal partners uh, are of the belief that that was with intentions to try to socially influence uh, sentiment around the elections. So, and, and then on top of that, we saw, and unfortunately we continue to see today, the use of social media to uh, kind of stir up and promote mis and disinformation, as well as use that platform to coordinate um, kinetic events or physical events, such as um, we saw social media uh, being used to try to um, coordinate caravans that would follow our recorder staff because uh, some folks thought that uh, they were doing things of an illegal or suspicious nature. So they were trying to use social media to coordinate caravans so that they could develop a schedule to follow our staff when they were traveling between sites. I mean, I, you can't make this stuff up. So we saw that all in 2020. Yeah, and we're going to come back to the, the, uh, the subjects of social media. But that last thing you said it is absolutely fascinating. You know, I'm wondering, just based on that, how, because you've got a, a real crossover there from, you know, social media, online activity, um, and that kind of security risk to an actual physical security risk where you're thinking about people, your staff, um, or other people who, who are working on behalf of the people in, in the county. How do you manage that, uh, you know, when you cross over from the online to the, to, to the physical world? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And so before I answer that, I want to make one thing clear. As a government organization, we obviously uh, respect, and matter of fact, I could tell you, um, in all my government jobs, we, we usually we have to sign paperwork that say that we, we promise to protect and defend the U.S. Constitution. And so we, we take that very, uh, you know, we take that very seriously, I would say. Um, and so the reason why I bring that up is we certainly respect and encourage people to demonstrate their right to, you know, peacefully protest, right? But conversely, on the other hand, from a cybersecurity perspective, our bread and butter is centered around risk. And so one of the things that we found out as a result of our response to the 2020 election was social media in particular um, was not only an indicator of increased cybersecurity risk to the organization, but also physical or kinetic risk. And so uh, that one example I gave you, that's just one of uh, many. And so what we wound up uh, doing as a result was changing our incident response protocols such that um, social media took on a greater role in terms of our, our monitoring for a source of intelligence and a threat vector. And but what we found out was we actually saw greater correlation between uh, activity on social media and physical risk than we did between social media and cyber risk. And so our protocols adapted and changed as a result. And that, we, you know, whenever we caught wind of that, we would then share that information uh, with the appropriate folks within Maricopa County or if there seemed to be imminent threats and we'd pass that along to our federal partners, things of that sort. Um, I will tell you this, uh, after the 2020 election, I had, I had this um, uh, meeting or conversation um, eh, probably about six months ago. 
things have gotten so bad and they haven't died down such that the Department of Justice here in the United States has actually created a task force and are working with other federal agencies to reach out to state and local government agencies, in particular around elections and elect elected staff and election uh, support staff because of the ongoing threats of their safety. So th this is a serious thing that unfortunately we're dealing with. It's really fascinating and also, you know, quite scary in, in a lot of ways. And, uh, uh, and yeah, that's really interesting. And um, so we, before we talk a bit about social media, you mentioned there about, you know, the kind of relationships that you have with national agencies and, um, yeah, I'm really no expert in how elections work as such, but I do know that elections are local responsibilities in the United States, that's, uh, you know, and that's an important part of the constitution as well. I'm just wondering how, how important those relationships are with, you know, wider federal authorities and agencies, uh, in terms of information sharing during, during elections. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I can, I can point out to tangible examples of the criticality uh, behind those relationships. I will say that I think really the 2020 election was a turning point from my perspective with regards to the nature and a real true two-way relationship with my federal partners. Um, my experience prior to the 2020 election was much more a one-way communication where I would communicate with the FBI and and I would provide them information, but it didn't seem to be equitable in terms of re being reciprocated. Um, <clears throat> with that being said, the 2020 election, I think, was a real turning point along those lines. I think a big, a big part of that was the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, in particular CISA. And so... Um, that really went a long way, but it wasn't just limited to DHS and CISA. Even my relationship with uh, the FBI in particular improved significantly along those lines. The information sharing that occurred was, was pretty phenomenal. And specific to um, the 2020 election cycle, we had it worked out pretty well where uh, we had not only our internal communication protocols, but during uh, leading up to the election and day of election, even post-election, we had our protocols in place where we we're communicating internally amongst the departments here at Maricopa County, but then also the locals or the state fusion center, which is kind of our, our a centralized point from a government perspective on where we disseminate information of a cyber or security nature, and then also our three-letter agency partners. And so... Um, I could tell you day of the election, we, I was talking to the special agent in charge of the Phoenix office of the FBI, the, the CISA region nine a representative, um, who by the way, happens to be the previous state of Arizona CISO, so great guy. Um, and so we were in constant contact literally on an hourly basis, if not more frequently based off of what was going on at the time. So. I can't imagine going through another election cycle, not doing that again in the future. And I think it's only going to become more critical. That's really great to hear. I, you mentioned in a previous answer that um, there's a lot of the part of the social media monitoring is looking at disinformation, misinformation from social media. What kind of risk 
is comes from that kind of dis and misinformation. How does that affect you as a CISO? And what do you think the effect uh, the effect is on election integrity more widely? Oh, it's um, from my perspective, hands down, it's it was the biggest problem that we faced. And again, keeping in mind, um, we address also we addressed a myriad of uh, cyber incidents for the 2020 election, and so. Uh, misinformation and disinformation campaigns definitely impactful. And I think it's worth mentioning to everybody who's listening to this, uh, even the delineation between mis and disinformation is critical because the fundamental difference be behind the two is intent. And so intent plays a pivotal role in ascertaining what the risk level is to an organization, right? And so um, misinformation is just simply, hey, uh, I heard this, it sounds plausible, I'm going to share this. And so there's an amplification that occurs on social media, right, about bad information. And so that in itself um, is definitely is something hard to combat because, uh, and I might be showing my age here, Gareth, but um, I remember the game telephone, right, where you get a line of people, you start off with one person who would say something and you would see how close to the truth you'd wind up at the end of the line, right? And so social media has basically turned that concept into an almost impossible game because once, once it gets out, there's, it's almost like you can't wheel it, uh, you know, reel it back in, so to speak. But the, the issue with disinformation is there's active intent to spread knowingly false information. And so that in itself is telling with respect to... Um, what the intent is and what the desired outcome is of the person who's doing that or the group or threat actor in nation state, whatever the case is. And so that was, that was hands down uh, our biggest challenge in the 2020 election. And honestly, you, you hit the nail on the head. So the whole, the whole issue with election integrity is um, I think what we have seen, unfortunately, is you don't have to have evidence of uh, malfeasance or uh, you know miss or doing something inappropriate in order to have a similar outcome, if you will. It's just you just need to get enough people to to adopt and embrace that thought, whether it's correct or not, and it just takes a life in it of its own, so to speak. Yes, absolutely, and uh, you know that. Freedom of expression, uh, freedom uh, to, as you said, protest and that kind of thing. I mean, these are absolutely fundamental to our, you know, our, our ideas and our philosophical beliefs about, but what what it means to be citizens in a in a free nation. But uh, always balanced with responsibilities, and um, it's uh, you can get some pretty scary outcomes when information starts going haywire, um, especially online in a kind of modern environment. Um, and to that end, uh, I, I was watching a uh, talk that you gave uh, as I was preparing for this call. And, um, you know, in it, you described us being in a, a new era in terms of threat intelligence via social media. We're now approaching another election year. Uh, I, I'm not sure how that affects you in your role if you're involved in uh, those midterms this year, but obviously there's going to be plenty of elections coming up. Uh, what are you going to be focused on in terms of cybersecurity and social media going forward? Oh, absolutely. Um, 
so the short answer is we're trying we're looking at ways to quote unquote up our game when it comes to social media monitoring and again uh like i mentioned earlier in in, in this podcast gareth we we look at social media as a source of intelligence meaning um we can't ignore social media as a platform and a source of information to determine what the potential risk is uh, to us as an organization. But it's also a threat vector, meaning it's, it's a platform in which uh, mis and disinformation can get propagated and as such amplify uh, discontent with the organization uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have to look at it from both sides, if you will. As such, um, any incident response that we have and what we've, what we've determined is while it obviously plays a pivotal role in election preparedness, um, social media, I'm, I'm, I've become a, an advocate that social media needs to be part of any information security programs arsenal. And so whether you deal with uh, elections or you, you uh, represent an organization that's publicly traded in the stock market, you know, NASDAQ, whatever the case is, or maybe you're a nonprofit. And so maybe your motivation or what, what's a high priority to you is brand and trust in your name. Um, I, I would argue any organization that values anything should be concerned about social media, whether it's the bottom line, whether it's your reputation or brand or a combination thereof. And again, you know, government's not a, not a commercial entity, if you will, but our reputation and the trust that people have in us is utterly critical. And so um, we're going into the 2022 election cycle, knowing that full well, um, doubling down in our investment in terms of social media um, to ensure that we, to the best of our ability, protect not only the integrity of our elections, but also protect our staff. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that 2020 was an outlier in terms of the amount of heat that it generated, the attention, attempted interference from you know, various groups, or is this an escalating thing? Is it a sign of things to come? Um, from, from all the conversations I've been involved in, understanding that, you know, prior to 2020, I hadn't had a firsthand involvement in the previous election. Um, I believe it's safe to say that 2020 was an outlier for the time. Now, moving into 2022 and on, um, I'm of the I'm of the opinion that I think the genie's out of the bottle, so to speak. Will it will future election cycles uh, be as contentious and uh, volatile? I think is a, a safe and accurate word to use um, as the 2020 elections. Um, I hope not, but. I think we'd be ill-advised to go into any future election cycle uh, not prepared for the worst, if you will. So while I'm hopeful, you know, the rhetoric and the mis and disinformation will be reduced, uh, uh, I, I just honestly don't know. Um, I, think, I think 2022 is still going to be contentious. I definitely think 2024 is going to be contentious because that's when the next presidential election cycle is going to occur. So 
I think the genie's out of the bag. I think we're going to see more of this. I think we're going to still continue to see social media uh, play a pivotal role in terms of influencing and impacting uh, elections and the perception of elections, um, but hopefully not to the degree that we saw in 2020. But we'll have to see. We'll have to compare notes, Gareth, after the 2022 <laughs> election. So. Yes, hope for the best and prepare for the worst uh, seems to be the, the most prudent way. So let me just wrap up because I thought you were, it was really interesting what you just said about learnings, you know, for other, other kinds of uh, organizations. That, I mean, I suppose it could be other public sector uh, executives or perhaps even people in the private sector who haven't, you know, totally uh, incorporated, you know, social media threat monitoring, that kind of thing. Um, what kind of advice would you give or, or what do you think they should be doing uh, to um, to look at this and, and kind of prepare uh, for the future? Sure. Uh, I think that's a great question. A couple of things I would encourage organizations along those lines. A, if you haven't invested and seen what kind of footprint your organization has in social media, that'd probably be the first step. So depending on your size and complexity and uh, sophistication of your organization. You may or may not have a communications department that already invests along those lines. Uh, one of the things that I've seen with organizations is even if they have a communications department, they tend to be more focused on um, promoting the organization on social media and less about maybe distilling or disseminating what the sentiment is. Now, more mature organizations uh, obviously already do that. And so that's a step in the right direction. So if your organization hasn't uh, invested along those lines to see uh, what the potential footprint is, that'd be step one, in my opinion. And then step number two, if you determine that you believe that there, there's a justified need to expand your security services such to the social media platform, um, close collaboration between a communications department and your information security department is critical, in my opinion. Um, that's one of the things that we did for the 2020 elections, and we continue to look at enhancing, frankly. And so uh, that was a situation where we included our director of communications for the entire county, but then also the recorder's office, who fundamentally was responsible for elections, they had their own communication staff. So our protocols included sharing that information with both of those entities so that they knew exactly what was going on and that we were in lockstep about what we were finding. So that way, um, a great example of that was, uh, there was this incident where there, it was called Sharpie Gate, where there was uh, misinformation being spread about how if you use a, a Sharpie marker to uh, place your vote, because we're paper ballots here in Maricopa County, that it wouldn't be counted. And it was actually the opposite. And so that was something where our, that communication department in the recorder's office was able to quickly respond uh, to that on social media to try to do their best to kind of stem the tide of bad information. And so just tying it back to your original question, I guess uh, that close collaboration between communications and your information security team is critical. And then lastly, determine what's important to you and what impact social media has. So again, like I mentioned previously, if you're a nonprofit organization, um, you're not obviously worried about stocks, but you're worried about brand and reputation because your ability to gain um, donations or things of that sort, uh, funding is more inextricably tied to your brand, right? Or if 
if you're a privately traded organization, what kind of footprint does social media show you have and what do people think about you? Um, I think it's safe to say that there's been plenty of examples where stock prices, for, for example, uh, have been influenced by social media. And so I think everybody's got reason to take a look and be more mindful of social media. And those are just a couple of ways of maybe getting your arms around that. It's really a great answer. And yeah, uh, I remember Sharpie Gate from, uh, from when the election was actually going on. And um, I suppose that's a really fascinating thing about the interplay of social media, you know, real time information is that, you know, the dis and the misinformation happens in, in real time too. And you kind of have to be able to co combat that. So I think that's a really fascinating example. And um, that, and that's about all the time we have for today. So I'd like to say thank you so much for joining me and uh, thanks for everything you do there uh, at CISO in Maricopa County. Thank you very much, Gareth. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Business of InfoSec podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're currently listening to make sure you get our latest episodes. Plus, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a review. As always, you can find us and engage with us on social media, as well as on the Business of InfoSec website, where you can find this podcast, as well as other topical articles, reports, and videos. So, until next time, take care.